This episode of The Great War Podcast is brought to you by Audible. The good people at Audible are offering you, the listeners of The Great War Podcast, a free audiobook download when you sign up for a no-cost 30-day trial membership. You can qualify for this offer by going to audibletrial.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash podcast. Whether it's for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 device, Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. If there's ever been a book you've wanted to read, but just haven't found the time to sit down and read it, Audible has got you covered. There's something for everyone, ranging from horror to comedy, from science fiction to history. Keeping with the trailblazers before me, I'm going to start by recommending one of the best books ever written about the First World War, Ernst Jünger's Storm of Steel. Famous for its detailed depictions of trench warfare, Storm of Steel was first published in Germany in 1920. It was one of the earliest post-war memoirs to see mass circulation, predating the likes of Siegfried Sassoon and Eric Maria Remarque. For military history buffs, it's a must-read. So remember, to download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. No capitals, no spaces. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast for your free audiobook. Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 25, Sing the Love of Danger. As we talked about last time, the gorlitzi tarnoff offensive in the spring of 1915 proved to be the decisive action on the Eastern Front. The Austro-German armies had the Russians in full retreat, reeling their lines back 500 kilometers in the first and most successful breakthrough of the Great War. But as the combined armies moved through Glacia with unmatched virtuosity, their advance was halted on May the 23rd, when word arrived that Italy, their former alliance partner turned neutral, had declared war on Austria-Hungary. Now, Italy's entry would not prove to be as decisive as the Entente or Rome had hoped. War weariness would hit the home front much quicker than any other power. But the Italian case is especially interesting, so it is worth peeling off and giving it its own episode. All sarcastic quibs about their military prowess aside, Italy was a square peg in a round hole. In July 1914, it remained an entrenched member of the Triple Alliance, pledging military support to its allies in the event of war, meaning it had a deeper military commitment than Britain had to France or Russia. But in August, as France, Russia, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Britain declared war, each citing defense as justification, Italy opted out. They were the only member of the two power camps not to be suckered in by the saber-rattling of that summer. Because of this, I feel that Italy deserves a closer examination than it usually gets in the historiography. Certainly, the fact that Italy chose neutrality shows that the pre-war alliances did not force nations against their will. Which begs the question, how did Italy, internally weak and racked with division, manage to wrestle free when its more powerful neighbors marched off to war? Since we have not covered the Italians for quite a while now, we should go back and catch up to what they've been up to, and why in 1914 they chose neutrality, only to declare war a year later against their former allies. Ever since their misadventure in Libya, Italy had more or less remained in an uneasy state of war weariness. The Libyan expedition, having gotten underway in October 1911, was hailed as the soothsayer for Italy's colonial ambitions. Their previous attempts at acquiring African colonies, notably in 1896, when its armies were defeated by a British-led Ethiopian force, was a humiliating setback for Italy's sensitive nationalists. 
So Libya was to be the cure for all its ills. Instead, what they got was what we already covered in episode 10, a desert standoff which swallowed 45% of the state budget and 4,000 soldiers dead. In fact, as we saw previously, the only thing saving Italy from further embarrassment was the outbreak of the Balkan Wars, which forced the Ottomans to sue for peace. But since October 1912, the Libyan hangover remained a few drinks too strong. Local Libyans, Arabs, and Berbers were unsurprisingly none too happy about being tossed to the greedy Europeans without their consent, and continued to cause unrest, forcing the new overlords to divert more manpower to the African continent and resort to increasingly brutal methods of oppression. As we talked about before, Italy was considered a great power through courtesy only. Its interior lacked public education, and railway lines and industry were nominal at best. The bulk of the country remained impoverished and illiterate, and as a result, millions left through emigration. In 1913 alone, 870,000 left the country from a population of just 35 million. But like its neighbors in the Balkans, Italy did not lack in ambition, and since its unification in the 1860s, imperialists in Rome had dreamt of establishing it as a Mediterranean powerhouse, using the Roman Empire as their motivational poster. This was, in part, the reason which drove the Italians to sign on to the dual alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary in 1882, henceforth the Triple Alliance. By aligning itself with these two nations, Italy had cast its lot with what was then the most powerful bloc in the world. Britain remained indifferent to continental affairs, France was still in its Bismarckian imposed isolation, and the German-led Three Emperors League with Russia had guaranteed that the Tsars would be kept at an arm's length. In short, this agreement had given Italy the security which a new, fragile nation needed to get its sea legs. However, it was Italy's relationship with Austria-Hungary which proved to be more problematic than not. Both had imperial interests in the Balkans, namely along the Adriatic coast, and Italian unification had come at the expense of the Austrian Empire, when Camillo Cavour plotted with the French back in 1859. Since then, Vienna always harbored suspicions of their southern neighbor, and for our purposes, this mutual animosity had flared up most recently during the Bosnian annexation crisis of 1908-1909, episode 9 for all you newcomers out there. Historians will continue to argue over when Italian loyalty began to waver. Some say it came in 1902, when their relationship with France had begun to improve, leading to a secret pledge of neutrality if Germany attacked preemptively while others say that their loyalty was never challenged until the news of the Austrian ultimatum to Serbia. But the Bosnian dispute represents a deepening gulf between Rome and Vienna. As part of the Triple Alliance Agreement, Vienna and Rome had agreed that any changes to the Balkans would first have to be approved by the other signatory, with territorial compensation heading the other way. So if Austria wanted Bosnia-Herzegovina, that was fine, but Italy would need to be reimbursed for the changing borders. But as we already talked about, this never happened and von Herenthal never bothered to consult Rome prior to the move. This was a red flag for things to come, which enraged the Italian king, Victor Emmanuel III, who in December 1908 told an American diplomat present at his court, quote, I am more than ever convinced of the utter worthlessness of treaties or any agreements written on paper. The only real strength lies in bayonets and cannons, end quote. Despite this increasingly tense atmosphere, out of respect and very real fear of Germany, Italy remained in the alliance, and renewed its commitment in December 1913. When it came, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand on June 28, 1914 could have gone two ways. On the one hand, Ferdinand was known for his Italophobia, so his death could very well have ushered in a new era of improved relations. But Hutzendorf, who non-politely referred to his southern allies as rabbits, was not going to be delayed in his war against Serbia by opening up compensation talks. The reason for Habsburg's suspicion was not solely rooted in historical bigotry, but also because Italian nationalists had set their eyes on provinces near the Austro-Italian frontier. 
Vienna was well aware of Italian interest in the Habsburg territories of South Tyrol and Trentino, both home to large numbers of ethnic Italians. These two territories, coupled with large Italian populations in Dalmatia, directly across the Adriatic, made up what Italian nationalists coined unredeemed Italy, and acquiring these lands were a focal point in the years preceding the war. So as the July crisis deepened, Italy found itself pulled between its military commitments and what was increasingly becoming common sense. As per the Triple Alliance Agreement, Italy's commitment outlined that in the event of a defensive war, it was required to send a cavalry detachment to fight alongside the Germans in a conflict with France. Note the singular, France. Also, the Triple Alliance Agreement stipulated that this commitment was contingent on either ally being attacked first. But Austria-Hungary had not been attacked by Serbia, and France had certainly not attacked Germany, nor had Russia attacked either. So to the Italian Prime Minister Antonio Salandra, who had replaced Giovanni Giolitti that March, it was obvious that Austria-Hungary was the aggressor, hoping to implement its own policies in the Balkans without adhering to the agreed protocol. This was given further credence by the foreign minister, Antonio de San Giuliano, who did not receive a personal copy of the Austrian ultimatum until several hours after its initial arrival to Berlin. The Austrian foreign minister, Berchtold, purposely delayed its arrival to Rome, making it the last capital to be alerted of Vienna's demands. While there were calls, notably from the right to honor its alliance commitment, Public opinion was unanimously in favor of neutrality, and with fresh memories of Libya still lingering in the air, there was little stomach for another dangerous adventure. Not to mention, most Italians saw that Austria-Hungary was risking a continental war for their own benefit, and knew that the combined British and French naval presence in the Mediterranean would make short work of any Italian response. So on the late hours of July 24, 1914, the statement was issued that since Austria had not abided by its agreement, Italy, quote, could not consider herself bound in connection with the further consequences of this move, end quote. Italy would get further justification for its neutral stance when on August the 4th, Britain declared war, which it had no obligations to defend against. But like the debate in Britain, if Italy wished to retain its great power status, it could not linger in neutrality for long. It could either wait to be dragged in or enter on their own terms. From July 1914 to May 1915, Italy was wooed by both the Entente and Central Powers. The German ambassador in Rome, former Chancellor Bernard von Bülow, had tried repeatedly to get the Austro-Hungarians to cede the Tyrol and Trentino territories in exchange for Italian belligerency against France. But of course, it's always easy to give away someone else's territory. A humorous little episode helps illustrate this point. In April, Falkenheim had suggested that Hutzendorf should pass von Bülow's proposal up to the foreign affairs minister. Hutzendorf responded by saying that he would get right on that, but only after Germany made peace with France by returning Alsace-Lorraine. The topic was promptly dropped. The path leading to Italian intervention got underway in November, just as the armies at the front were settling into their winter positions. That same month, the respected foreign minister San Giuliano passed away, and was replaced by Sidney Sanino, who, like the prime minister Antonio Salandra, had come to see the Entente as the more reliable ally. Their old foe, the Ottoman Empire, had joined the Central Powers. But despite this, the winter of 1914-1915 saw the Entente with the strategic advantage. Austria-Hungary had lost in Serbia and Glacia, and the French and British had stopped the German advance. Plus, these plans for an allied adventure at the Dardanelles also seemed promising. However, there remained a strong body, namely the King Emmanuel III and Chief of Staff Luigi Cardona, who saw that if Italy got involved, it should be on the side of their alliance partners. But the civilian atrocities in Belgium and Serbia had further cemented to the Italian public that it was their said alliance partners who started the war in the first place. Plus, there remained the simple fact that the Entente could offer more in exchange for Italian belligerency. 
Since coming to power in March 1914, Salandra's government had pursued a policy of sacro-egoismo, literally sacred egoism. This politic outlined that Italian policy was of innate self-interest, allowing Salandra and Sonino to pursue the best deal for Italy, whether through territorial acquisition and prestige at a minimum cost. Basically, it meant that allegiances be damned, and Salandra was not concerned about being seen as manipulative or untrustworthy, as long as the end result was of Italy's best interest. So it came down to a simple question. If Italy wanted to reclaim the Austrian-held territories, what was the most affordable way of achieving them? If Germany and Austria won, there'd be no hope, and even if Italy joined their side late, there was no guarantee they would be made equal partners in the post-war negotiations. But on the other hand, being part of a victorious Entente would put them in a much better bargaining position, since Britain and France would have to repay them for the neutrality the previous summer. Helping this was that Salandra and Sinino were keen on what public opinion was up to, and a movement emerged among poets and artists that the European war was the tonic to all of Italy's social and economic problems, allowing the various provinces to put aside their regional differences and unite in a common goal. They argued that in 1914, Italy was not strong enough, but it had enjoyed a period of recuperation and now wanted to claim its seat at the table. This misguided belief of unification through warfare is certainly beating the dead horse a bit, but it struck a chord among the passionate Italian nationalists on both sides of the spectrum. It was poets and newspaper publishers who led the charge. One of the most infamous, Gabriel D'Annunzio, a rather appalling and repulsive human being, became championed by the likes of another charmer, Benito Mussolini, then editor of the socialist newspaper Avanti. D'Annunzio's poetry, which is pretty awful to be honest, called the nation to, put bluntly, sacrifice its own children in order to take its place among the great powers. One such poem, The Triumph of Death, D'Annunzio writes, quote, We are fighting with arms. We are waging our war. Blood is spurting from the veins of Italy. We are the last to join the struggle, and already the first are meeting glory. Clearly, D'Annunzio suffered from delusions. But D'Annunzio was not the only one. Filippo Marinetti, another poet famous for begetting the Futurist movement, which argued war and violence was not only natural but desirable, enjoyed a rejuvenation in this simmering atmosphere. The Futurist Manifesto, first published in 1909, outlines the appeal, mixing the glory of a national struggle to the arts. Quote, we want to sing the love of danger, the habit of energy and rashness. Beauty exists only in struggle. There is no masterpiece that is not an aggressive character. Poetry must be a violent assault on the forces of the unknown to force them to bow before man, end quote. Nasty stuff, but sing the love of danger they did. On March the 4th, 1915, the London ambassador met with Sir Edward Grey, and negotiations between Italy and the Entente were underway. On April the 26th, the Treaty of London was signed in secret, promising Italy a hefty prize of territory, the Tyrols to the north, Istra to the east, and Dalmatia, along with protectorate status of Albania. All that was required was for Italy to declare their belligerency in one month. If you look at the map at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, I've highlighted the territories promised to Italy as per the agreement. However, the Treaty of London would prove problematic down the road. The Serbs had not been consulted until after it was signed. And due to its secrecy, American President Woodrow Wilson would not honor the terms during the Paris peace settlements. But that was all something far off in the future. On May the 20th, Parliament voted 407 to 74 in favor of intervention. And on May the 23rd, Italy declared war on Austria-Hungary. It should be noted that Italy would not declare war on Germany until August 1916. But all the same, welcome aboard Italy. Fully mobilized by mid-June, the Italian army consisted of 900,000 troops, which numerically posed a serious enough threat to the Austro-Hungarians. But Vienna was not surprised in the slightest. 
After all, this only served to confirm the dubiousness of their southern neighbor. Due to the demands of the ongoing Gorlitzi Tarnoff offensive, Falkenhayn refuted numerous requests from Hutzendorf to transfer divisions from Glacia to the Austro-Italian border, some 600 kilometers of rugged terrain dominated by the Alps. Don't forget, Falkenhayn had already sent eight divisions from the Western Front to supplement Hutzendorf's forces, so he was not about to let his colleague run off to play Napoleon. But the topography of the Austro-Italian frontier had indicated that any attempts by the Italians would most likely be delayed because of the inadequate north-south railways, but also because the Austro-Hungarian navy, based at Pula, dominated the North Adriatic. In fact, on May the 23rd, the fleet commander, Admiral Anton Haas, steamed his fleet out of Pula, proceeding to bombard the Italian coastline, striking numerous coastal bridges, rail lines, and seaports. The Italians did not fire a single shot in protest. Owing to Falkenhayn's refusal, Hutzendorf was initially forced to man the border with Home Guard reserves raised from the frontier provinces, and units transferred from the now-dormant Serbian front. In addition, 100 volunteer battalions were also organized, largely due to the rejuvenation of the Austro-Hungarian home front. The idea of a former ally and historic enemy declaring war stirred up something fierce among the public, and a strong outpouring of patriotism prompted thousands to enlist for the Italian front. True to Vienna's predictions, three weeks after hostilities commenced, the Italians deployed 460,000 men along the 600-kilometer border, with hopes of striking across the Zonzo River and capturing the port of Trieste, the largest in the dual monarchy. But the Austrian commander, a Croatian general by the name of Svetisar Borovic, who fought in Glacia in the Carpathians, was experienced in mountainous warfare, and knew the only serious attempt had to come from the northwest, because with the Alps and Swiss frontiers, there were no other avenues readily available. In response, Borovic had 228,000 troops, but, as you can imagine, had taken advantage of Italy's mobilization to scope out the best real estate. Posting his sentries on the Iraqi escarpments east of the Isonzo, they had a clear view of the advancing Italians, and, as we shall see, on no other front in the war did terrain favor the defenders. Commanding the Italian army was General Luigi Cardona, whose primary role of chief of staff also saw him serve as a field general. Because of his dual role, Cardona was afflicted by the most incurable of disease, being a self-congratulating jerkface. Under Cardona, nothing was ever his fault, and would blame the failure of his coming Isonzo campaigns on cowardice and naysayers back home. Born on September 4, 1850, in what was then the Kingdom of Sardinia, Cardona received his first officer's commission at the age of 18. It was educated in what can best be described as a polarized Italy. Being from the north had brought with it a strong military tradition. The great fleets of the Venetian Republic, which withstood a 24-year siege by the Ottomans in the 1650s, was one of the more famous. But Sardinia had also been the birthplace of Cavour, the father of modern Italy, who was born in Turin, where Cardona attended the military academy. Due to this proud history, Cardona despised political and civilian interference in military affairs, and had initially turned down the chief of staff role in 1908 because he felt that then Prime Minister Giovanni Giulitti was too nosy to let him run the show. To make matters worse, he was a firm believer in the cult of the offensive, and tried to model Italy's army after the Prussian, using, quote, an iron discipline to run throughout the army, end quote. Of course, this was never to be. Italian unification proved more difficult than German, because lethargic provincialism still ruled the day. Regional dialects from the north, spoken by the officer corps, clashed horribly with the mostly raw enlisted men from the south and Sicily, many of whom had never even seen the northern part of the country. Further hampering this problem was that the troops lacked proper training grounds. The Italian peninsula is dotted with mountain ranges, with the Alps in the north to the Apennines which run almost unbroken from the Po River to the southern boot. For centuries, these mountains formed a natural barrier protecting the interior, 
but it also meant that the wide plains necessary for training were in short supply. When the Allies invaded Italy in 1943, they would learn firsthand the logistical difficulty of moving a large army, and, having visited Italy in 2013, I can personally attest to the uneven and winding terrain. The Italian front, from June 1915 to October 1917, would become Case Evidence 1A in attritional combat. Beginning on June the 23rd, Cardona would launch the first of four battles in the mountainous area of the Isonzo Valley, hoping to break the Austrian lines and advance into Istria. If this sounds strikingly familiar to what Hutzendorf had planned for the Carpathian campaigns, well, you have been paying attention. Cardona was not a visionary, and despite observing the attritional struggles in France and the Carpathians, for some reason he thought it would be a good idea to do the exact same. Borovich had set his lines west of the Isonzo, and soon the Austrians formed a semicircle, reaching from the Swiss frontier and through the stunning Dolomites, a sub-range of the Julian Alps. From there, the Austrians would repel numerous attempts thrown by Cardona, until the Italians suffered the morale-breaking defeat at Caporetto in October 1917, no less than 11 separate campaigns in the Zonzo took place. Now, we won't get into all 11, obviously, because that would be far too much, but every one of them was costly. The first, from June 23rd to July 7th, resulted in 6,300 dead. The second, July 18th to August 3rd, 10,700 dead. The third battle, October 18th to November 3rd, 7,500 dead. The fourth and final for 1915, from November 10th to December 2nd, just one week after the third battle, saw another 8,000 killed. The most successful, the 6th Isonzo battle in August 1916, moved the line just 5 kilometers. Cardona obviously held it a resounding victory, despite another 21,000 killed. In the first 10 weeks of the war, Italy had lost 20 times the number of casualties suffered in the year-long Libyan campaign, with 80,000 in total. The problem which Cardona refused to recognize was that the terrain was no place for an army to operate. The Zonzo Valley is a narrow plain, dissected in half by the parallel running river, with each side surrounded by the crescent sentinels of the Dolomites and Western Alps. The Austrians held the mountain ridges, while the Italians, exposed in the plain below, attacked into the mountains hoping to get a foothold. The Italians may have had the numerical advantage, but the Austrians had the heights, which made all the difference. Limestone shrapnel kicked up from bullets and shell bursts sent razor-sharp bits of metal and rock flying in all directions, causing the bulk of the fatalities. The only time Cardona's troops were able to get a foothold was if the Austrians pulled back or rotated to get a better angle. With the bulk of the fighting taking place in the mountains, the lone sentry perched on a ridge, thousands of feet in the air, became the enduring image of the Zonzo campaigns. Troops were cramped together, and the trenches dug were the highest of the war, at some 12,800 feet, but they were also the shallowest, which left men on both sides exposed to shrapnel and small arms fire. Because the troops could not dig as deep as those in France, the dead were left above ground which, you can imagine, did not help the stench or hygiene situation. But there was another serious problem, which Cardona, again, refused to recognize, and that was the acute shortage of artillery. You simply could not fight in this terrain without it. Since the lines were separated by cliffs, ridges, and literally behind mountains, the only way to hit the other was through heavy artillery, whose high arcs of fire could cover the impeding obstacles. But in June 1915, there were only 2,000 artillery guns in the Italian army, with a mere 120 being heavy enough to be of any effect. Then, too, there was the sheer lack of shells, and worse yet, roads in which to bring the guns to the front lines. Mobile guns had to be disassembled and carried piece by piece up to the front, with the men carrying them using makeshift bridges or tethering themselves to prevent slipping to their deaths. It could sometimes take hours to get all the pieces assembled. It was exhausting, dangerous, and terrifying work. But there were also innovations taking place, too. 
Alpine troops, employed by both Austrians, Italians, and later Germans, were specially trained volunteers, usually officers with backgrounds as ski instructors or mountain climbers. These groups, operating as small squads, would be used to quietly infiltrate the enemy lines and sabotage supply columns. While another invention, the rolling bomb, became highly effective, and it operates exactly as it sounds. A timed explosive which could cling to a cliff face and roll into the enemy position. With the Isonzo campaigns consuming more men for little gain, Italian enthusiasm for war began to waver. By the end of 1915, some 200,000 enlisted men, 20% of its army were unaccounted for, or simply vanished through desertion or surrendering to the Austrians. Fueling this exodus were reports from the home front which indicated unrest among the public. As Italian men were the primary breadwinners, families whose fathers, brothers, or husbands had been mobilized meant there was little income for the household, and unlike Britain, France, or Germany, which soon introduced allowances for veteran families, there was nothing of the sort in Italy. Considering how most Italian families faced food shortages and starvation on a daily basis, it was particularly devastating, and many had come to see Salandra, Cardona, and Sanino as the source of their burdens. It was not uncommon for Italian troops to put down their rifles and attempt to make their way back to their families, which posed a geopolitical issue not just for Italy, but its new allies. Like the other powers, Italy expected a quick war. With men leaving the ranks, this proved to Cardona that there were shriekers and mutineers actively seeking to undermine the prestige of the army. Not only did it become clear that the Italians in unredeemed Italy were not flocking to his banner, but he had come to blame the stalemates at the Isonzo on his junior officers. When Salandra finally had enough of Cardona's bombastic statements following the rout at Caporetto in 1917, he had already dismissed 217 officers and ordered the execution of 800 men for any conceived slight of insubordination. Nearly 10% of all Italian servicemen were accused of something at some point. Plus, with the Russians being rolled back from May to August and the landings at Gallipoli going down the crapper, the British and French had hoped an Italian entry would drain substantial Austrian forces from the east. But with no pre-war industry to speak of, equipment, food, and munitions had to be imported by Britain, France, or the United States, which, as you can no doubt guess, was little more than a band-aid solution. So from these conclusions, it is safe to say that the Italian entry was misguided and hampered by its own internal divisions. Its army was capable enough, but with a severe lack of proper equipment and led by a yahoo like Adona, it was certainly limited to what it could do. The men were brave, but were not trained in the type of fighting which was required of them. Besides those impressive 5 kilometers in August 1916, the Italian war ended as quickly as it begun. The formidable mountains and stiff Austrian resistance had kept them contained in the northwest pocket, until they were overrun in October 1917, which we will talk more about when we get there. At home, the regional divisions were left to simmer, and would come to play a larger role as time went on. With the central government under Salandra, and later Vittorio Orlando becoming lightning rods for public anger, it did not take long for things to get a bit crazy. When the Paris peace settlements got underway in 1919, the Italian delegation found itself hamstrung by President Wilson's 14 points. Wilson would not recognize the promises made by the Entente in the Treaty of London, and after losing 650,000 killed and another 956,000 wounded from 1915 to 1918, the romantic notion of a united, stronger Italy emerging from the flames was squashed dead. Domestically, this led many to defy the central government, railing against it as American puppets and non-Italian. One of these voices came from the right, a former socialist by the name of Benito Mussolini, who in 1922 would introduce Europe to its first fascist government. Next week, we are going to hop across the Adriatic and look what unfolded in the Balkans beginning in September, because the Germans and Austrians were not done with their advance. By pushing the Russians back, a corridor had opened which allowed the combined armies to strike south. On October the 7th, 
August von Mackensen's army changed course and crossed the Seva and Drina rivers into the heart of Serbia. Then, one week later, without warning, Bulgaria declared war, joining the Central Powers in destroying their Slavic rival. The attack was so overwhelming, Serbia would cease to exist until 1918. Hutzendorf's dream of crushing the Serbian Viper would come true. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podman.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get in contact with me. Questions, comments, and suggestions are always more than welcome. I would like to thank listeners Michael, Richard, Clarence, and Rachel for their generous donations. Thank you very, very much. For those of you wanting to help out the Great War Podcast, you'll find the donate button on the homepage, or you can visit us on iTunes and write us a five-star review, as that will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract any new listeners out there. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.